This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Ben Fountain, whose latest novel is Devil Makes Three. He's the author of one earlier novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, author of a nonfiction book about the 2016 election, Beautiful Country Born Again, which we spoke about and will do some follow-ups, and a collection of short stories, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara. And Billy Lynn became a film made by Ang Lee, which we'll talk a little bit about. I finally got to see it on Stars the other night, and I felt like it could have been a lot more. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. Let's start with Devil Makes Three. And I guess I want to start in a fairly uncomfortable place for a moment because I love the book. But two things have come up. One is cultural appropriation is the first, and the other is writing from the point of view of a woman, of a black woman, of a Haitian-American woman. So I want to kind of get that out of the way before we talk about this novel, which takes place in Haiti in 1992, in and around the time of the Clinton election. I appreciate that you went for the hard stuff right away. These are issues I've thought about every day for the last 10 years. Well, let's take the first one, cultural appropriation. Writers have written across gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, across time. I mean, a historical novel is you're writing across time. And the way writers have always done it is you do your research, you go to the place, you talk to the people, you learn everything you can. And I think that's a perfectly honorable and often effective way to go about the work. I hesitate to apply that to this particular situation. I think there's a question of degree. And what I'm talking about is 500 years of a particular kind of history, 500 years of Europeans pushing into the new world and all the things that followed, in particular, genocide of indigenous people and theft from their homes of Africans to be brought over to the New World and held in bondage, often under the most inhumane circumstances imaginable. And so I really wonder if the usual standards suffice when we're talking about these things. And so for me, a white male American who, you know, has had a very privileged life in a lot of ways, for me to, to write about Haiti a country that's suffered the brunt of both of those aspects of history that I just described, I really wonder. I think there's, there's a definite moral, ethical issue in me taking on this subject. But as I think about it further, what else would I write about? To me, it's central to our lives, our individual lives and our collective life. And it's central to our history. And to me, it's the most important thing I could possibly try to tackle as a writer. And then there, there's another aspect to it, and that is I was in Haiti during those coup d'etat years, the years that, that the book deals with. And I saw what I saw. I heard what I heard. And I think about it in these terms. If someone like me, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male from America, 
had somehow made it into the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943, saw what he saw, heard what he heard, and then made it out, and then said, actually, no, I can't write about it because I'm not Polish, I'm not Jewish. I would consider that to be a gross dereliction of duty. I would consider consider that to be a moral failing. And so I feel myself kind of whipsawed between two moral imperatives. Number one, you know, to respect the history I'm writing about, the history of Haiti and all the suffering and misery that, that has occurred there because of this new world history of Europeans moving into the new world. But on the other hand, I would feel like a, I'm ignoring, I'm neglecting, actually I'm, I'm transgressing my moral imperative not to write about it. And so, I mean, I'm whipsawed between the two things. And in terms of writing from the perspective of women, which works perfectly, but must have given you some pause. Yeah, absolutely. First, I mean, there's just the craft challenge, the artistic challenge of working your way into a character's skin when the character's experience is so different from the author's. I mean, as, as Marilyn Robinson once wrote, she said, it's not enough to know what your character is feeling and what your character is thinking. You've got to get inside the character to the extent where you're living in their nerves. And, and I think by that she meant with all the contingency and, and uncertainty of real life. And so I felt like I, as Misha became a bigger and bigger part of the book. And she was not intended to be. That's correct. I mean, she, she elbowed her way into the very center of the book. I felt like it would be a huge lost opportunity if I don't try to write her. And so, you know, I worked as hard as I could. And she worked me really hard. On the other hand, she is central because she is the moral backbone of the book. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, she comes from a scholarly background. She is a 21-year-old PhD student at Brown University getting her her degree in black the scholarship of the Black Atlantic. And so she returns to Haiti and she can't help but see her experiences through the lens of her scholarship. And that scholarship took me on a real journey. It's not just book learning. It's there is such a powerful moral component in the scholarship of the Black Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, Misha got in the book and she wouldn't leave, and, and I think that's great. Well, the other part of it is that, okay, the main character, other main character, Matt Amaker, is a surfer dude who could be Ben Fountain if Ben Fountain were a surfer dude. And yet at the same time, because of her scholarship, on some level, she's more you than he is. I think that's accurate. I think that's fair to say. Misha is a book nerd, and I'm a book nerd. So it was a real pleasure to explore the world through her eyes and also to provide a syllabus of Haitian reading you know, along the way through her mind and her, and her training and her scholarship. And, you know, Matt, I mean, he's kind of a random American dude who ends up in Haiti running a dive shop. And I'm, I'm sort of a random American dude. <laughs> well, Ben Fountain, before we go into some specifics on the book, and we could go in a number of different areas because it's one of those books where every word is crafted, and there's the history of the book as well, but 
I want to go in a slightly different direction for the moment, and I don't want to get too caught up in it. But a lot of people don't know too much about Haiti. Okay, so this was a French slave state where the slaves revolt in the early 1800s, correct? Yeah. Hispaniola and Haiti occupies the western third of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic, the eastern two-thirds. It was the first place where Columbus not only made landfall in 1492, he established relations with the indigenous people there. And when he left to go back to Spain for supplies and more ships, he left 39 or 40 sailors there. And so it was, you know, first contact, first colony, first bloodshed. Because when Columbus returned, the 39 or 40 men he left, they were dead. And the Indian, the indigenous account is they were misbehaving badly. We got into a conflict with them and we killed them. Haiti has been on the leading edge ever since. So as of the latter half of the 17th century and moving into the 18th century, it was a French colony and sugarcane and coffee were the two main crops being produced. It was the most lucrative colony in the world by far of any nation. It was an extreme, it was a wealth producing machine. And that wealth was being produced on the backs of an unending supply of people held in bondage brought over from Africa. And the conditions were so harsh that the average lifespan of an enslaved person in Haiti was seven years. And they rarely you know, had children because conditions were so harsh. And so it demanded an unending supply of human beings to feed you know, this extraordinary economic engine. So in 1791, the slaves revolted against their French masters. It was a long and bloody war, which took place through st- several phases and stages. It was, a, it's, it was an extremely complex conflict. By the end, Haiti had created the first and so far only republic in the world founded by slaves who had freed themselves. It wasn't just a slave revolt, though. It was a revolution. And by that, I mean the formerly enslaved people of Haiti created something new under the sun. The Constitution they wrote and adopted was the most liberal and humanist of its kind. Just to give you an example, under the Haitian Constitution, if you were an indigenous person from anywhere under persecution, or if you were an enslaved person from anywhere, if you made it to Haiti's shores, you had asylum. You were free. And Haiti was not going to send you back to where you came from. I mean, that's, um, that's pretty advanced thinking. From what I read, not long after that, suddenly they had a king. I mean, something devolved fairly quickly. Yeah, in the northern third of the country, a man took power, Henry Christophe, and he named himself Henri I. I mean, the country split up into fiefdoms for a while. But, you know, as of like the 1820s, there was some semblance of democracy working. Haiti was the first black republic in the world by 150 years. And Ghana was the next in 1959. What the formerly enslaved people of Haiti were saying 
when they threw off the slave masters and declared their independence was, we say no to the global system. We reject this role that the West is trying to impose on us, namely that we cannot live as human beings. We are told to live as economic units in this vast engine for creating wealth for other people. We refuse. That was a very powerful thing for Haitians to do. And to the Western world, to the global order, it was a very dangerous thing. The Western world regarded Haiti as a threat to its hegemony and to the order it was trying to impose. And so Haiti has always suffered for that. And then we move on and eventually things deteriorate through various governments and we come to an American occupation early in the 20th century and then eventually we get Duvalier and the dictatorship which goes away. I mean that was supported by the United States and we have an election. The man elected is Aristide who was a priest and I remember in around 1990 or 89-90, he was the great hero, but within a couple of years he was overthrown with the support of the CIA. Now we move on to Ben Fountain. Okay, so Ben Fountain is a lawyer, 1988, he wants to be a writer, he quits his job, puts all the money issues on his wife, and I'm sure she loves it, And three years later, winds up in Haiti. Why did you wind up in Haiti? Was it just on assignment? No, I was drawn in by Haiti. I started paying attention to it. And and let me say one of the great things about writing fiction or being a writer is, is to a greater or lesser extent, you can follow your head and your heart where they lead. That's a wonderful way to live. And Haiti started drawing me in for a number of reasons. I think you can sum it, sum it up like this. It seemed to me Haiti was ground zero. Haiti was the template for, for 500 years of history of Europeans moving into the new world and all the legacies that that history has created, which, you know, can be summarized as why is the world the way it is? Why does it work the way it does? Who has the power? who is oppressed, who gets the wealth, who gets plundered, who suffers, who enjoys. I had a sense that these processes were playing out in Haiti in this very direct and brutal way. And I had a notion for a story set in Haiti that started becoming a novel. And then I thought, well, I've got to go. I've got to go see for myself. And so in 1991, in May, when Aristide was still in office, I showed up in Haiti and I didn't know a soul there. I had no contacts. I had a little bit of French left over from college, but um, I showed up to try to learn about the place. How long were you there? How did you get around? Did you learn much Creole? I mean, how did that work? I went for a week. I mean, my wife has had a very successful career practicing law. She absolutely kept us going. I sponged shamelessly off my wife You know, for all those years, I wasn't making money, but we had two small kids by then. And so when I would leave, that that was a real hardship on her. And so I said, I'll go for a week and just see what's there. 
And so for that week, I stayed at the Olufsen Hotel, which is a ramshackle gingerbread mansion in the middle of Port-au-Prince, which is the model for the Trianon Hotel in Graham Greene's Comedians. And let me tell you, Richard, every grifter, scam artist, con artist, you know, hustler, gambler in Haiti sooner or later ends up the Olufsen. So it, it was a very colorful place and it was the place to be. So I stayed there pretty quickly. I met a fella who turned out to be not just a very trustworthy guy, but a great friend of mine for the next 20 years. And so once he realized what I was doing, like I didn't want to buy art. I didn't want to go see the girls. I didn't want to go to the beach. I was looking for history. And I had specific history I was after. And once he realized that, he was totally on board. And so it was an intense first week. It was a really good first week. I traveled a lot. I saw a lot. By the end of that week, I felt like, yeah, this feeling I had about Haiti being ground zero, I think there's something to it. And so I'm going to proceed with this. And so that's where it started. And you went back several times since. I've been back close to 50 times. I mean, I went at least twice a year for the next 25 years. One thing I noticed, and it kind of bothered me in Devil Makes Three, is there's no map. Yeah, there's no map, and there should be. And my wife made the same comment when she was reading the the advanced reader's copy. She said, you know, there really should be a map, and I should have pushed for that, but maybe in the paperback. And the reason I say that is because, in my mind, when I was reading the book, I was trying to get a sense of place, and I made the mistake of waiting until my prepping for this to look up the map, and that's when I noticed something, which is that if you're on the southwest corner of Haiti, and you want to get to the northwest corner of Haiti, you're traveling a C, the letter C, and it's going to take you a very long time. And in the center of that is Port-au-Prince. And when I saw that and realized, okay, Matt's dive shop is in one place, the wrecks are in another, he's doing a lot of traveling, and then there are the mountains between Port-au-Prince and Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is demanding, challenging topography. And there are mountains beyond mountains. Often the roads are really poor. Certainly during the coup d'etat years, the roads deteriorated. Yeah, so Matt's dive shop is about 40 miles north of Port-au-Prince. And the wreck that he and his business partner, Alex Variel, who's Haitian, the wreck that they start exploring and, and start salvaging is off the southern coast of Haiti, fairly close to Jacques Mel. So at that time, it was probably a three-hour drive from Port-au-Prince to Jacques Mel, and then out to the dive site another 90 minutes. Yeah, but by then the guys had lost the dive shop, and, and so <laughs> all their efforts were focused on that wreck. In terms of creating the novel, so after you wrote the short story, you obviously wanted to write a novel, and you began working on it, and it didn't work. I wrote a novel in the 1990s set in Haiti. I wrote the novel that I intended to write, but it wasn't any good. As first novels, they usually aren't very good. Well, when you say it's not very good, 
without going into too much detail, but when you say not very good, how do you determine that? You look at it and go, yeah. It was kind of labored. It needed more compression. It took too many pages to too little effect. And it just, it didn't have the spark of life. I realize now that that was the book I had to write to get to the point where maybe someday I could write something worthwhile. I read the short stories that were collected in Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, and half of those are set in Haiti. And then came another failed novel called The Texas Itch, set in Texas. And then I wrote Billy Lynn. And after Billy Lynn, you decided to get back to it, but it wasn't until after your political book that you really got into this. Yeah, I flailed on a new Haiti novel for two years. And then at the end of 2015, The Guardian came to me and said, we think 2016 is going to be a crazy year in America. Would you like to cover the election for us? And I was thinking the same thing. We are in uncharted territory. I think Trump is a real phenomenon and he's not going away. And so I said, yeah, I'll take that job. And so by the end of 2016, I I felt like, well, I need to know a lot more. Like, I really don't understand what happened. So I spent the next two years after that working on Beautiful Country Burn Again. That came out in 2018. And then 2019, I went back to the book that became Devil Makes Three. And during the pandemic, with not much else to do, you could really, really get into it because there was no distraction for a year and a half. Richard, writers self-quarantine all the time. Yeah, basically what I did was hunker down and work on my book. And nothing was happening. Nobody was asking me to go anywhere. I didn't have to say yes to anybody. I didn't have to say no to anybody. I just focused on the book. What brought you to decide that your main character at the beginning was going to be a surfer dude who opens a dive shop whose best friend is Haitian. Well, that makes sense. And I guess you kind of figured it the first time he might as well be in love with the sister. (laughs) What brought you to that idea? Or was that always in the back of your mind as a good place to start? All right. Great question. The general in charge of the coup regime in real life was, and I suppose he still is, a big scuba buff. He was mad for scuba diving. And one of his PR lines during the coup regime was, I'm looking for buried treasure. And if I find it, it's all going to be for Haiti. You know, nothing for me. And so I just started thinking, what if you took kind of a random American dude who's in Haiti and he's a dive guy, he has a dive shop, and all of a sudden he finds himself, because of his diving skills, being sucked into the inner circle of this general, the the leader of this very brutal military regime. I mean, I like situations that are culture clash, that don't go together. And so here's this American guy, doesn't mean anybody harm, but suddenly he finds himself in the middle of this, like, you know, really dangerous and fraught politics. That just seemed to me very fertile territory to start with. So that's where I started. And you said it then because that was the perfect time and you were there for a week. A week the first time, but I kept going all through the coup years. Yeah, you know, it just, I mean, when you do this work for a while, hopefully you develop an instinct for material. Like, this material, this particular character 
this aspect of experience, it feels like it has a lot of potential. Like there is a lot there that t- that could take us into some useful directions. And I felt like that combination of scuba diving general, scuba diving American, and the coup and all that followed, it just seemed like if I could write it properly, it could be a, a compelling novel and hopefully a novel that would say something real about how the world works. Well, in the first section, this is before Misha, the sister, becomes a main character. In fact, I don't even think she appears as a POV character until part two. Exactly. You have another character, Audrey slash Shelley, and she is a CIA agent, and she's, I don't know, I picture her in my mind as, say, one of the Dallas cheerleaders (laughs) in appearance from Billy Lynn. Where did she come from? And what kind of research did you do to create a believable character? Uh, Francine Prose in the New York Times called her a monster, but I didn't see her that way. I knew the CIA would need to be part of it, part of the novel, because it's an integral part of the history of that period. I couldn't do that story justice without it. And pretty quickly... Audrey came to me. She's a rookie CIA case officer. This is her first posting. She is very ambitious. She's smart. She's aware. She is a human vacuum cleaner in terms of information and 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 wanting to understand everything and know everything. But she also has a keen moral awareness. And she understands right and wrong. But she takes it on herself in this very conscious way that this is part of what case officers do. We get our hands dirty. We do the rough stuff. We do the unsavory stuff for the benefit of the country. And so I, Audrey, am consciously taking on whatever sins need to be committed for the good of America. This is part of my job. And she kind of gets into it. I mean, she figures, well, this kind of makes me a badass, actually. I, I'm I'm a pretty tough, tough number. So And all through the book, she's making this moral calculation. And as the situation becomes more and more brutal, and she becomes more and more repulsed by some of the things that are happening under the auspices of the CIA, she is really questioning, you know, is it worth it? Like, can it be justified? And so over the course of the book, I'm wondering, is she going to keep breaking bad? Or at some point, is she going to break good and renounce all of this? But you didn't know that as you were writing. No, I didn't know it. And I'm not going to tell you (laughs) how it goes, but it kept me interested in her. Like, I always felt like there was always this tension of, I don't know what she's going to do. Well, you also had the advantage, since she is a point of view character, POV character, but you also have the advantage of the very moral Misha, the sister, looking at her and knowing exactly who she is. So you can step outside of her and observe her from the outside as well as from the inside. Yeah, no question. I mean, we see Audrey from her point of view. We see Audrey from Matt's point of view. We see Audrey from Misha's point of view. And and by the way, everybody is seeing everybody else from a different point of view. I mean, Misha, you would think she's the most unworldly character of all. I mean, like I said, she's a book nerd. And she has spent her life in the study, Carol. But she 
She gets everything quickly. She's smart. <laughs> and not only is she smart, and I didn't realize this was going to happen in the book, she uses her scholarly skills to figure out what's going on. Which brings up a question about research. In the book, and these aren't really spoilers, but in the book, there's a situation involving hospital records and the situation involving the interplay of the NGOs and the money coming into Haiti. What kind of research did you do? Did you basically do the research that her friend overseas in, in Brown University did? At one point, she, she needs information, and this is pre-internet. And so what does a scholar do? A scholar turns to the library. I mean, she's, you know, however many miles away from Providence. But she writes the reference librarian at Brown University and says, I need this information. How'd you get it? I've been reading about the, the CIA, and I hope this won't sound pretentious, studying the CIA for the last 35 years. I think it's, it is a power, powerful and central force, not just in American life, but in the world. There's not a whole lot that has come to light about that period in Haiti about the CIA. And I did my Freedom of Information Act request back in 2015. I'm still waiting. But a great deal has come to light about CIA activities in Central America all through the 1980s. And so that's where I went for my source material, because I can guarantee you the CIA was doing the same thing in Haiti that it was doing in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala in the 1980s. So, you know, just through 30, 35 years of reading, and then as I started this novel, you know, even more focused reading and researching, I tried to build that world and, and, and try to, to imagine, plausibly imagine, what the CIA would have been doing in Haiti during that period. Well, a lot of it has to do with big money being funneled. After a while, your eyes start to blur because... Everything is dark. It's just impossible to find, impossible to see, but you see the connections. I guess on some level, that's a subtext of the entire book. You know, follow the money, like what Deep Throat told Woodward and Bernstein. Follow the money. That's one of the things I was doing. One of the things Audrey is doing, the CIA agent, is she's got a cover operation. It looks like it's a humanitarian assistance. That's the cover of it. But actually, it's, it's an operation running arms into the military regime. And, you know, that takes money. It takes money and logistics. And so I got into the weeds on that. To me, the devil is in the details. If you don't get the details of these things right, it lacks all credibility. And you got the details in the diving, too. Yeah, thank you. Did you do some dives? I mean, I, I've been diving once. Okay. Um, yeah, but... Uh, Again, you know, I went to school on that as well. Ben Fountain, Diving for Treasure, you did specific research on the cannons, I would guess? Yes. Treasure diving in general, and then I found myself focusing on bronze cannons in particular that seemed to hold some value in the marketplace. Voodoo? A lot of research into voodoo. I started going to voodoo ceremonies pretty quickly once I started going to Haiti, which is quite an okay thing to do. And 
I found the, the voodoo societies to be very welcoming and open to outsiders. It's not a big deal for somebody like me to show up. And as long as you show respect, you're very welcome. And I will say this, Richard, I mean, voodoo gets a really bad rap in mainstream American culture. But all of my experiences with voodoo led me to conclude that it is as honest and profound an expression of human spirituality that I've ever encountered. It's an old religion. It predates the Abrahamic religion religions by millennia. And I just found it to be, I mean, I call it the mother religion. It, it came out of Africa just like we came out of Africa. I got the feeling, now you may have done specific research on hospitals in poverty-stricken areas, but I would think that what Misha experiences and what her friend Jean Hubert experienced in the hospital isn't just Haiti, it's worldwide. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, my best friend in Haiti is an ophthalmologist. He's a, he's a Haitian gentleman, and so I've spent my share of time around Haitian hospitals, and they can be very grim. Ben Fountain, one quick question just for me. You have these POV characters, point-of-view characters, and you have main characters. One of the main characters, Alex, the brother, does not have a point of view. Yeah, it's, you know, I noticed that as well. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I had three points of view, Misha, Matt, and Audrey. And I think that was all I could handle. It's as simple as that. At what point did you realize that fact? During the writing or when during the rewriting? Yeah, during the writing, I realized, you know, that we weren't seeing Alex from his point of view, but we get a lot of Alex. And I think we get a fair idea of who he is. Again, I think it was just my writer brain could only handle three points of view. Four would have been too many. Switching gears, Ben Fountain, how did the democratic establishment take beautiful country. I mean, you really dig a hole for them. I don't know. Really? <laughs> because I never got a phone call. I never got a nasty letter. A couple of my friends who who were reasonably close friends with the Clintons were a bit frosty with me for a few years, but that warmed up. I mean, Richard, I'm just a little writer in Dallas, Texas. And I wrote a book about the election. I called it the way I saw it. I thought there is a lot of blame to lay on the Democratic Party establishment for the state of the country. And I laid it out there. I think I, think I made a really strong case for that. But, you know, they have all the money. They have all the computer power. They have all the resources and all the tech. I don't think they're very worried about me. Sort of sound like Molly Ivins there. Did you know her, by the way? I did not. I did. I met her a couple of times. She was. <laughs> that's why I say you're sort of sounding like her at that point. I'm just a little, a little Texan, Texan gal. But of course, she was much more than that. When you're looking at 2024, before we sat down just now, you said 2024 reminds you a lot of 2016. Can you go into that just a little bit? I think it's the same dynamic still at work. Some particulars have changed, 
but you could say the same dynamic, only worse. I mean, our political polarization is deeper. Our political dysfunction is more extreme. We've got more violence in our politics. The authoritarian tendencies are even more pronounced. Um, I think it's all of what was going on in 2016 just to, you know, a greater degree. And so, I mean, Trump is still, you know, the major player. He's the one everyone else reacts to. And uh, the Democrats, as they did in 2016, they don't look particularly strong or effective. And so I think, I think 2024, let me put it this way, it is going to be as unpredictable and wild and surreal as 2016 was. And how do you think the, the uh, mainstream media is handling it? Richard, <laughs> I have kind of tuned out the last 18 months. I can't do it. I used to watch CNN, MSNBC. I would tune into Fox every day to see what they were saying. And increasingly, I felt like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I heard this last week and the week before and the week before that and, and months and years. It feels like the same old stuff coming around over and over. And so what I'm doing is reading books. And, you know, trying to go deeper. So I feel like the mainstream me or the media, I guess I will start checking in again at some <laughs> point. But but to be honest, I've just kind of checked out of them for a while. Well, having checked into it, it's they don't seem to realize where we are. The analysis in the New York Times, it almost seems as if for want of a better term, they put their heads in the sand, mm -hmm. kind of pretending that life goes on as it always has. And I'm looking around, and it's not. Yeah. Is the house on fire? I mean, we're cooking dinner, and the house is on fire around us. It could be that. Deck chairs are being moved on the mm -hmm. Titanic. Ben Fountain, how did Billy Lynn become a film, and why didn't it work? Well, even before the book was published, a production group called The Ink Factory got in touch with me, and they had seen the manuscript, and they were interested in trying to turn it into a movie. And the most of the principals of this group are sons of John le Carre, and uh, so they got the literary side of it. There was every indication they wanted to make a serious movie, a good movie, and so we, we sold the film option to them pretty quickly. They got things going. Um, things started to fall into place, and Ang Lee got attached. And so we were off. Why didn't it work? Why didn't it work? I mean, let me say this. Ang Lee is a real artist. He's a great filmmaker. Not just him, everybody involved in the film wanted to make a good movie, a great movie. There were no hacks involved, and uh, it seemed like all the ingredients were in place. Maybe two things. Number one, Ang was trying a completely new technology. He he was filming it, filming the movie at, at 120 frames per second, whereas the standard is 24 frames. So that that took a lot of his time and attention dealing with this brand new technology, and I think, I mean, the book. My reading of the book 
is it's kind of bizarre. It's it's a surreal, frenetic, absurd, funny, sick, and twisted day in the life of Billy Lynn and his and his fellow squad mates. And the movie takes a much more tempered and serious approach. And by serious, I mean a lot of the humor and absurdity kind of fell by the wayside. And I, I was frustrated, frustrated with the movie. I felt like it needed more energy, like more things happening, you know, in every scene and one scene overlapping another. I wanted it to be a sensory overload, whereas Aang went for a much more measured approach. I had two problems, and they were in the casting. One was Vin Diesel, mostly because he's Vin Diesel. You don't want Vin Diesel in that role. And the other, of course, was Steve Martin. For the same reason, both gave perfectly fine performances, but they were Vin Diesel and Steve Martin. And if Steve Martin is playing Jerry Jones, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I can see your point. It's like the persona of the actor takes over the part. Yeah. Good, a good attempt at a movie. It was a good movie. And there were a couple of moments in the film, particularly toward the end when Billy realizes exactly who that cheerleader is and what she wants. That really worked, I felt. You know, what strikes me, the difference between the movie and the book, and I certainly don't feel like any filmmaker has to be a a slave to the book. But in the book, there is no set piece battle scene. And I always thought there would be, like there would be this big, you know, flashback to the battle and A, B, C, D, I'd take you through it. And that never happened. I only give you fragments. And as I was rewriting, I I started to feel like that's the correct way to do it. I don't want to give the reader the satisfaction of this big, you know, World War II movie you know, set piece. It's like, no. And it's also, I think, the way soldiers experience combat, just fragments, just bits and pieces. They don't get the whole story. So, but the movie did do the big battle scene, number one. Number two, at a pivotal point in the movie, a moment of crisis, Sergeant Dom kisses Billy Lynn on the lips. It's an expression of brotherly love and also angst and grief it's just a natural expression of human love. There's nothing erotic in it. It's just in the moment. The movie left out the kiss. So the movie put in the battle, all the bloodshed, and left out the kiss. I think that's saying something. Well, there's a point toward the end of the film where they they all say to each other, I love you, but it doesn't have the impact. Right. I think... There's nothing like seeing that big kiss on the screen to really drive home the point. (laughs) Vin Diesel trolling. No, 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 no. Anyway, Ben Fountain. I want to get back to Devil Makes Three. First of all, the title. What made you choose it? Well, you know, the American folk song, Go to Sleepy Little Baby. And it shows up in, among other places, Oh Brother, Where Where Art Thou? The Coen Brothers movie. And that rendition especially is really haunting. I mean, it seems like it's a lullaby, but it's a very dark lullaby. And there's a line in there that that goes, you and me and the devil makes three. And that always seemed to me like a great title for a story or a book, Devil Makes Three. And so there are a lot of devils in this novel. 
And so I thought, well, that applies. That's close enough. When we started the interview, we were talking about Haiti up to 1992. We have not spoken about Haiti since 1992. And then I read in an interview you did that after 2016, you just couldn't go back because it's a failed state. Somewhere in there, there were a couple of earthquakes. There was a massive hurricane. Yeah, the big earthquake happened in January of 2010. And um, I was going there, you know, in the years leading up to and the years leading after. You know, there's been a series of natural disasters, which are a combination of natural disaster and man-made disaster. And you know what I'm saying. I mean, man-made conditions make these things so much worse. A series of political disasters, heavy-handed U.S. meddling in Haitian politics, uh, neoliberal economics, which continues to suck wealth out of Haiti. So it's just, you know, poor Haiti can't get its feet underneath it. I had every intention after I finished Beautiful Country Burn Again to start going back to Haiti. By then it was 2019, and kidnapping had become such an industry by then that my friends said, don't come. You know, it's too dangerous for you. For a blonde. For a blonde. That's right, for a white guy like me. But now it's everyday Haitians who are getting kidnapped, just regular working people. They will be taken off buses or tap-taps or off the street and held for ransom. And and these are people whose families have, like, they're broke. But the gangs will say, look, your family can come up with $500. We're holding you until they come up with 500 bucks or 1000 bucks. So everybody's fair game now. Do you think, not giving away anything about the book, but do you think the very old family by... 2000 would have decided enough is enough and all of them moved to uh, Miami? Maybe. Might well be. Yeah. A lot of people have left. Most people who can leave have left. Or at least they've got one foot in the U.S. or another country and one foot in Haiti. Um, Life is really difficult in Haiti right now, especially in the Port-au-Prince area. So I have thought about that too. Where, Where would the Variels be? now. The city of Cap, Haitian, you don't really describe it, but it sounds as if it's a completely different world from Port-au-Prince. You know, certainly it is now. It's much more secure. I have blonde friends who who have gone to Cape Haitian in the last couple of years, like they fly directly from Florida there, and they say it's okay. I mean, Haitians, they have a joke. They say it's the Republic of Port-au-Prince, and then there's the rest of Haiti. I mean, Cape Haitian is a, is the second biggest city in Haiti. It's um, you know a long way from Port-au-Prince. It's got its its you know own distinct culture and vibe. I haven't spent a great deal of time in Cape Haitian. I've spent most of my time in Port-au-Prince and in the South, but certainly in Devil Makes Three, we do make a foray up to Cape Haitian to look for Columbus's sunken <laughs> flagship. Well, I was just struck by the fact that um, most of the book deals in places of poverty other than mountain retreat, and it suddenly feels as if they're staying in a real hotel in a real city. Oh, in uh, Cape Haitian? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, you are right. <laughs> they are staying in a real hotel as opposed to the jail in Port-au-Prince. <laughs> Did you visit that jail? The Caserne is no longer there, but I went in there. Yeah. It's no longer there. Right. It, it's it's long gone. But it was um, it was built in like 1911 in the French colonial style. And uh, then during the U- first U.S. occupation, starting in 1915, the U.S. Marines occupied it and expanded it. And um, during the coup years, one day the gate was open and I just walked in and just kind of looked around. And I think people were so shocked to see me there. They figured there must be a reason why he's here. And so nobody challenged me. And so I just kind of looked around and I was so freaked out that I'd gotten in that that I I left pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, I lacked the presence of mind to continue the bluff. Yeah, I walked in, you know, spent a couple of minutes just kind of looking around and then I walked right back out. Are most of the locations in the book real? Yes. So you could pinpoint, if it existed, Matt's dive shop. Yeah. Yes. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the hotel nearby. Oh, Tommy Rittenhouse's yeah. place. Yes, absolutely. Is that a real place, the hotel? It was. It was. <laughs> I don't know if it's if there's anything left of it. Yeah. But yeah, it was a collection of bungalows. And at that time, was that also the time when the drug running really took off? Yes. Yeah. So all that is real. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, there were a lot of drugs moving in through the 80s. And after Baby Doc fell, the latter half of the 1980s and various military regimes were in power, it really started to ramp up. During Aristide's short time in office, there was a, a, a genuine crackdown on the drug trade in cooperation with the DEA. But after the coup, it was the Wild West. It was like no holds barred. I want to talk about something else, which is the meticulousness of the prose in Devil Makes Three. Uh, What was your first draft like, and how much did you go into it, and were there any major cuts you made? Yeah, for me, it all starts at the level of the line, the level of language. And style is not, it's not a question of writing pretty or decorative or lyrical is trying to find the right sound, the right idiom, the right language attitude for the material. And with Billy Lynn, it seemed to me that language attitude had to be sensory overload and just like fast sentences, run-on sentences, dense sentences. For Devil Makes Three, it's a more deliberate, it's a more deliberate pace. And so I think the language is more measured and and also because just of what Haiti is, Haiti's a very like it's it's a sensorially powerful place, visually, you know, olfactory, you know, auditory. I mean, it is just it is just a very vivid place. And so the writing, particularly the physical descriptions had to, you know, try to do that reality justice. I mean, it seemed to me that the experiences these people are having, they're very intense experiences. And 
often the stakes are life and death or approaching life and death. And so the language had to pack that kind of emotional charge. And, and so, you know, so a lot of the book was me trying to work my way towards language that would, that would deliver that intensity. Was that on a later draft or sentence by sentence in the first draft? Well, it, it's, there were many drafts. And so you're trying to hone in on the signal in the first few drafts. It's like, what exactly do I have here? Does this feel right? Does this sound right? But if it's working for you gradually, it's like the dial on the radio. You know, you're, you're getting closer and closer to the pure signal. But it's a messy, messy process. And um, there are many different stages in any one particular draft of, well, right now I'm working on this, but then it seems like I need to focus on this. So it's a very, um, it's not pretty. Uh, what I noticed is the attempt, the successful attempt, in the scenes in the prison to get a sense of the noise, the heat, the flies, the mm -hmm. bugs. Yeah. So that that's kind of almost not even not even cinematic. It's one level beyond that. It's it's like virtual reality. Yeah, you know, that's that's what writers that's what we try to do. I mean writers of fiction. We aren't conveying information so much as we are trying to create an experience. And if the work is good and if the reader is receptive, a book can be an experience, a profound experience, just like any other profound life experience. When I've talked to a number of writers, some of them say that what they're trying to do is kind of create a movie in the person's head. But then when I talked to Mick Heron, who writes the Slow Horses books, he was going, no, I'm I'm not doing that. If that's the result, that's great. But that's not really what I'm doing. I'm just kind of shooting for the language. Yeah, it all starts with the language. And maybe it ends with the language, too. It's, I mean, movies can be great. Okay, film, like TV movies. But I still think language is the most malleable, the most versatile the most profound medium that our species has come across to express the complexity of human experience. At any one moment in a person's life, there are going to be so many layers and levels of what's going on. And I think, you know, movies will show you the exterior and the good filmmakers can depict the interior by what they're showing on the outside but I think a good novel is going to go deeper than a good movie just because language is a much more profound medium and can do more. Ben Fountain, who do you read? Oh, I read promiscuously. There are writers who have been very profound influences on my life, and I still go back to them. Robert Stone was a great American writer. Joan Didion. I think Marilyn Robinson is a national treasure. I think Zadie Smith is very fine. But go back farther, Saul Bellow. I mean, he was a revelation. Reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez for the first time, it was like an entire world opened up. It depends on who I'm thinking about that day. Hemingway was the first. 
Like when I was 14 or 15 and I discovered Hemingway, that was probably the beginning of my literary life. He was doing something to me. I had no idea what he was doing or how he was doing it, but I started to see my life in a different way. And so Hemingway was the first. Our relationship has gone through many ups and downs since then, <laughs> but, but you know, he was, he's still the first, and, uh, and I still go back and read him. Ben Fountain, now you've stayed out of politics, so I guess we're not going to see another political book, but you, <laughs> you don't know? Yeah, I mean, if somebody gave me the right offer, you know, if somebody came to me and said, we are interested in you, you know, covering 2024, I would be tempted. But I'm not out there beating the bushes. I've got a novel cooking along pretty good right now, and that's where my head is. In the uh, interview, you said you were on page 63. Where are you now? 150. Pretty good. How far into it are you? At least halfway. Tell where it's set or when? It's set here in the U.S., say, three or four years in the future, and it is set for the most part in Washington, D.C. and Dallas, Texas. And uh, it's very much about the here and now of our collective life. You've more or less stayed out of, as you say, current politics. But do you see any signs that things could improve? As long as people are working and working together at the grassroots, I think there's a lot of hope. Sometimes people ask me, what do you think the Democratic Party should do? I say, I think the Democratic Party should be more like the Black Panthers. You know what the Black Panthers did? They went into communities. They provided free breakfast for school kids. They provided health care cooperatives. They provided for self-defense and security in their neighborhoods. They were in the neighborhoods all the time. They lived there. And so I think if a political party in the United States really wants to work for the people, and get true popular support, go into the communities, work in the communities, live in the communities, do tangible, real things for working people. You've been listening to an interview with Ben Fountain, whose latest book, his latest novel is titled Devil Makes Three. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 